0: page seven of your order of worship, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Their glory, like the flowers of the field, the grass withers and the flowers fall. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work you are already doing in this worship service. You have led us in singing. You have led us in prayer. You have led us to give generously. To confess our sins and hear the pardon from your word. Continue your work, O Spirit, O Sovereign Spirit, blow upon this room, and as only you can, work in our hearts through the preaching of your word. Would the proud be humbled and the humbled be exalted? Would the prodigal, wayward come home? Would the self righteous older brother repent? Would you convict us? Would you comfort us? Would you save the lost? Encourage the saints. Do what only you can do, Holy Spirit. We ask through Christ. Amen. Lent is uh, designed as a season of deep contrition and lamentation over Failures and sins. It's meant to prepare us for Holy Week when we see what Jesus does with our sins. We need to grieve them before we celebrate his finished work. And we've been using the Psalms to be our guide through that season. And there's no Psalm that embodies the ethos of Lent more than Psalm 51. It's written by King David, arguably Israel's most revered figure, the one chosen by God to rule over his people because, as God directly says through his prophet, this is a man after my own heart. What a lofty title that is, a man after God's own heart, and yet what's so interesting about this man, after God's own heart, is that he is the perpetrator of one of the Bible's most infamous transgressions. If you're not familiar with the story, David was on the rooftop of his palace, and uh, from that position, he can look down on the city, and he notices Bathsheba bathing, and inflamed with lust, he sends for her, forces himself upon her, she becomes pregnant. From there, he goes to great lengths to cover up his transgression, which culminates in having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. It's your stereotypical case of abuse of power and cover-up. With one key difference. When exposed, David doesn't write a non-disclosure agreement. He writes Psalm 51. This psalm is holy ground when you think about it. We get the journal entry of David after he ruined his life and family. And what we find here is perhaps the most contrite and repentant words recorded in Scripture. This is the essence of men and women after God's own heart. Not sinlessness, but how they respond to their sinfulness. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. Our family visited. Uh, New York City this past week during spring break, and we had the opportunity to tour the 9-11 Memorial Museum. I highly recommend that experience if you're ever in New York. It's haunting in the most appropriate ways, and one of the things they do so well is help you truly understand the mentality of the 9-11 terrorists. It avoids the Uh, uncharitable and simplistic take that, you know, just paints Islam with the broad brush of terrorism, which is extremely unfair to the vast majority of Muslims who would condemn the September 11th attacks. If you don't like uh, being viewed through the lens of extreme Christian fundamentalism, then don't do the same to our Muslim friends. Instead, the museum demonstrates the unique complexity of al-Qaeda and their extremism, which culminated in the attacks. How they were truly convinced that Western occupation in their homeland, along with the decadence of Western culture that was taking over the world, made Western society enemy number one in their minds, and thus worthy of jihad against the West in general, and America in particular. Now, it may come as a surprise to you, but Christianity has its own form of jihad. The word simply means striving, a religious struggle and striving against the enemy of one's religion. And though Muslim scholars and Muslim traditions disagree about how that should be interpreted in practice, and the extremism of 9-11 is by far the minority position, nevertheless, it is agreed that there should be some form of struggle against enemies of Islam's religion. And Christianity. Would agree with that religious concept. But here's the key question. Who is the enemy of our religion? According to Christianity, it happens to be you and me. I am the chief of sinners. Thus, the holy war, the jihad of my religion is against my sins. I mean, after all, when we return to the Sermon on the Mount, after Easter, Jesus is going to give us a Bloody warfare picture, gouging out eyes and cutting off hands, but it is my metaphorical blood that is being spilled. What does it mean to be men and women after God's own heart? We are those who view the enemy as internal, not external. A sinner after God's own heart is offended by the way I have offended God's own heart. And that is what is on display in Psalm 51. It follows a threefold pattern, and I want to want us to look at each of them in detail. Here, here's what we see in David's response to his egregious sin: a contrition, petition, and ambition. Let's we'll start with contrition. He says, Have mercy on. On me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, there's a degree of conviction and contrition that everyone shares in common. One of the truest signs that we are in fact made in God's image is our sense of moral obligation and remorsefulness over our failure to meet that obligation. We are moral creatures. We feel bad when we do bad things, particularly, and this is the key, when we get caught doing bad things or when the consequences of doing bad things catches up to us. And what this shows us is that our intrinsic morality as image bearers has been twisted by the reality that we are also fallen image bearers, meaning even our moral compass is now sinfully selfish. We feel bad over sin because the way it affects us or those we happen to care about. But there's a unique form of contrition introduced to our experience when we are, as Jesus says, born again, when we are given a new heart concerned ultimately about God's heart. Our eyes are open to a newfound conviction and we become bothered, irrepressibly so, that our transgressions are first and foremost against our God whom we love. David says, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. What an interesting statement that is. My sin is ever before me. The fallen conscience of humanity that humanity shares doesn't speak of sin in such ubiquitous terms. My sin is before me when I'm caught. When I do something really bad. When the consequences catch up to me. But David says my sin is ever before me. How so? David explains, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, once we realize that our sin is against God, then we become aware of our sin's pervasiveness. That which seems harmless and inconsequential suddenly becomes profoundly serious There is no such thing as insignificant sins, even if, by our own estimation, nobody is harmed. Still, it is not insignificant, for all transgressions are against God, whom we have transgressed. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, this this God-centered view of our sins may at first seem to diminish the significant damage sin causes to other people. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned? I I can hear the objection from my friends who are not Christians, perhaps some here, saying you Christians are so obsessed with confessing your sins to God and getting right with God and salvation with God. God, God, God. Well, what about the actual people that you harm? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Did not David sin against them? I think that's probably a fair critique in many ways. But if there is a critique to be made, it's in our failure to understand and apply this this God-centered approach to our sin. Rightly understood, this view of sin reveals how harmful it truly is. You see, without God, why should you not mistreat others? Without without an ultimate standard of morality and, and justice, are we not licensed to exploit, harm, misuse, and abuse others for our own selfish, personal gain? I mean, David is the king. In that time, the king can take whatever he wants. Who cares about seemingly insignificant Bathsheba and Uriah? the the common response in that day of a king like this would be like, I don't care. But that's not what we see in Psalm 51. Because the answer of who cares about Bathsheba and Uriah is God cares. They are made in God's image. You harm them, you harm God. And so a God-centered contrition rightly applied, leads to a neighbor-centered contrition as well. It gives moral grounding to that vexing moral question, why should I care about others? Sinners after God's own heart say, I care about what God cares about, and God cares about everyone made in his image. And so a good test for whether we truly believe That our sin against others is ultimately sin against God is whether our apologies to God overflow into apologies to others. You can't have one without the other. And so why don't we, who claim to have a heart for God, take that test now? Are you known for your contrite and apologetic lifestyle? Or is it just when you're caught, when you face consequences of your actions... If you believe your sin is is against God, then your sin will ever be before you, as David says, which also means your apologies will be ever flowing from you. But it doesn't just end with contrition. Next, we see David's petition. He starts begging to God, verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. In every way he knows how to say it, for God to do something with his sin. And this again is rooted in a God-centered view of sin. If you remove God from the moral equation, then it's as simple as making things right with those you have harmed. We apologize. We counter our bad deeds against others with good deeds towards others and things like this. But what if every wrong committed against others is in fact a wrong committed against God. Worse yet, what if the unseen thoughts, words, and deeds that seem to have no consequences are actually eternally consequential in the eyes of God? What if my sin against God is, as David says, ever before me? Well, now we have a bigger problem on our hands. We have to make things right with God. And I'm sorry, this is an impossible task. Your only hope is that God will make things right with you. That's why David cries, cleanse me, wash me, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquity, don't cast me from your presence. That's all we're left with, friends. That's all he has to do is beg, plead, petition, cry out for God to do what he does not have to do, indeed what he ought not to do. Make things right with us. With respect to old-time religion, telling you to get right with God, that's not happening. The question is whether God will get right with us. Well, I have really, really good news to announce again this morning from the pulpit as we try to do every week. News David announces in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will never despise. Here is the good news for you, O oh weary sinner. All you have to offer God, the sum total of your religious contribution is your broken contrition. That's all you have and that's all God asks. Can you give him that? seems easy, but it's actually not. It's counterintuitive. It's a counterintuitive invitation that requires an uncomfortable level of humility. We are conditioned to hide our shame, not expose it, to justify our wrongs rather than to admit them. And so if God were to ask us to justify ourselves before him, prove ourselves to bring him a resume of goodness and hide from him our blemishes, that's something we would be glad to offer him. But that form of religion is actually what God despises. What he will never despise, however, is a broken and contrite heart. Can you give him that? I want to suggest that as difficult as that humility may be for you, It's something you're longing to do. Is it not so exhausting trying to justify yourself as a good person? To defend, to hide your failures, to excuse your inescapable immorality, and to perform enough morality to counterbalance it. What an exhausting life to live. Well, our psalm is offering you a way out of that life. You could just give up. You're allowed to just give up. You could just give God what he wants, which is is that you have nothing to offer him but a broken and contrite heart. Sinner, it's okay to be a sinner. So long as you bring it to God, bring your sins to God and ask him to make it right. And that's exactly what he will do. Indeed, exactly what he has done. Out of the ruins of David's heinous sin would come a Savior. And I mean that quite literally. Bathsheba is named in the genealogy of Jesus, which is so like our God to do. The season of Lenten remorsefulness culminates in the somberness of Holy Week that begins a week from the day. And that fateful week is the ironic celebration of our Savior's suffering. A broken and contrite heart God will never despise is made possible by a Jesus who was despised and rejected. Our sorrow and grief over our sins is answered by a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. The begging, the pleading of David in Psalm 51 The begging and pleading of every broken and contrite sinner has been heard. More than that has been answered. The sins we bring to God have been handed to Jesus. On Friday of Holy Week, he will die for them. On Saturday, he will be buried with them. And on Sunday, he will rise from that burial, leaving our sins behind in the grave forevermore. He's alive your sins are dead. The most haunting part of the 9-11 memorial is the section devoted to the victims. There's this dark and somber room that you enter into and slowly, methodically, the image of every 9-11 victim is projected on the walls one by one. A face appears... And then a solemn voice reads the name out loud. There's only so much you can take before you have to just get up and leave. But all day, every day, without ceasing, that dark room recounts the victims of that tragedy. I want you to imagine yourself in a similar room only devoted to your life. Recounting the tragedies that have come from your life story. One by one, the harm you have caused is detailed for you to see. It would be too much to bear. You want to close your eyes and plug your ears, but that would accomplish nothing. The litany of failures would just carry on without ceasing, whether you're willing to face it or not. Or the other option is to face it to come undone in its presence and allow it to forge in you a broken and contrite heart to where all you have left to do is to bring to God the cry of David in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. If you will do that, then all those tragic images of your failures would fade away and be replaced by one image and one name a man hanging from a cross would appear and a singular name would be announced, Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners. And then it would all be over. Actually, not quite over because there is one final step here that must be mentioned. What would be your response leaving that room? How would you respond to that? We've seen David's contrition and petition This gives way to his new life ambition. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Here's what David's saying. Save me, God, and I will spend the rest of my life telling everyone what you have done for me. Sinners after God's own heart proclaim to a watching world the saving love of God's own heart. Your story is no longer a story of self-promotion, but God promotion. Your previous life ambition to show the world how impressive you are is replaced by a life ambition to show the world how impressive your Savior is. And so I'd like to close by doing just that. I I want to do, God has done for me what He has done for David, so I'd like to respond likewise. Friends, if He can save me, I promise He can save you. That's not false humility. I mean that with every fiber of my being. If you only knew. If only you can see in me what I see in me behind this sacred robe is a profoundly broken and flawed man. I'm the pastor of this church, and I sincerely believe I am the chief center of this church. But here's what is so astounding about a community of men and women after God's own heart. Every single one of us would argue the same. I hear you, Robert, but if you only knew me the way I knew me, you would realize that I'm actually the chief of sinners around here. What an odd religious community Psalm 51 forms, not a competition over who's the best, but over who's the worst during communion in the first service. um, A dear older saint of the Lord. has been around here forever. One of my heroes in the faith walked forward. I served in a communion and he winked at me and said, I got you beat. What kind of community is this? Competition over who's the worst sinner. Well, it's a useless competition because our Savior has silenced the debate with a definitive word. Actually, friends, I took it all. Anything that any of you can name, I became. And friends, anyone is allowed in on this. This can be true for you too. It worked for David. It worked for me. It has worked for countless other sinners and it can work for you. It is true you are a sinner. But you too can be a sinner after God's own heart. Let me pray. Our God, every sermon is rightly applied with the sacrament, but we feel it now more than ever. Your body broken, your blood shed, this do in remembrance of me. O oh, Jesus, fill us with your grace. We bring to you our sin. We bring to you our broken and contrite hearts with the good news that you will never despise them. Instead, you welcome them at this table. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.